Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. This is episode two of Extreme Ownership, the Bible of winning. Jocko Willink, Leif Babin, episode one, introduced the concept, the paradigm shifting idea of extreme ownership. And now we're going into a little bit more paradigm shift and fucking craziness than we're diving into the laws of combat, and finally Jocko is going to walk around with his tactical vest open and hand us out fucking gold. Hell Week. No bad teams, only bad leaders. So, Hell Week is the Navy SEAL training program thing where, like, they've got a week where basically they just get tortured, and whoever can just deal with the torture long enough, they're like, you'll do. And so... All the students are split into boat crews. So like, I don't know, eight people, something like that. So if there's, you know, 80 people in training, there's 10 boat crews. Okay, you got it. In each boat crew, the senior ranking man served as boat crew leader, responsible for receiving orders from the instructors and briefing, directing, and leading the other six members of the boat crew. The boat crew leader bore responsibility for the performance of his boat crew. During SEAL training, and really throughout a SEAL's career, every evolution was a competition, a race a fight, a contest. While it paid to be a winner, this rule had a corollary. It really sucked to be a loser. Second place in the instructor's vernacular was simply the first loser. But bad performance, falling far behind the rest of the pack, and coming in dead last carried especially grueling penalties, unwanted attention from the SEAL instructors who dished out additional punishing exercises on top of the already exhausting Hell Week evolutions. In every race, there were standout performers. Throughout this particular Hell Week, one boat crew dominated the competition. Boat Crew 2. They won or nearly won every single race. They pushed themselves hard every time, working in unison and operating as a team. Boat Crew 2 had a strong leader, and each of the individual boat crews seemed hot crew members seemed highly motivated and performed well. Meanwhile, Boat Crew 6 was delivering a standout performance of a different kind. They sucked ass. Leif kept his eye on the leader of Boat Crew 6. If he did not show substantial improvement in leadership ability, he would not graduate from the program. Let's swap out the boat crew leaders from the best and the worst crews and see what happens, said Senior Chief. All other controls would remain the same. Heavy and awkward boats, manned by the same exhausted crews, cold water, gritty and chafing sand, wearied men competing in challenging races. Only a single individual, the leader, would change. Could it possibly make any difference, I wondered. Boat Crew 6's leader was obviously elated. It was clear he felt that, the, that only by the luck of the draw and no fault of his own had he been assigned the worst boat crew of underperformers. In his mind, no amount of effort on his part could make Boat Crew 6 better. 
So, you know, this Boat Crew 6 sucking a huge dick, no offense. Um, then, you know, the leader's like, man, you know, I got all these amputees. I got these, these horrible people. Like, it's not my fault. My team just sucked. So they switched them. So the best leader is now with the worst crew. The worst leader is now with the best crew. And they started the race. As the boat crews came in on the headlights, the numbers were clearly visible. Boat crew six was in the lead and maintained first place all the way across the finish line, just ahead of boat crew two. Boat crew six, the shittiest one with the best leader, had won the race. It was a shocking turn of events. Boat Crew 6, the same team in the same circumstances, now only difference is new leadership, went from the worst boat crew in the class to the best. Gone was their cursing and frustration. Because they were like all cussing at each other, like, come on, bitch, you're hurting my head. And gone too was the constant scrutiny and individual attention they had received from the SEAL instructor staff. Had I not witnessed this amazing transformation, Leif says, I might have doubted it. But it was a glaring, undeniable example of one of the most fundamental and important truths at the heart of extreme ownership. There are no bad teams, only bad leaders. Now, what what it, what it's also saying, like that's a cool little phrase, and that like really encapsulates the idea of extreme ownership. But there are there there for sure could be a team that even if you're a good leader, gives a bad outcome right now. But the whole idea of extreme ownership is then it's your fucking job to figure out, to, to hire new people, to fire old people, to train the team until you're delivering the good outcome. Because there's no bad teams. That's not a good enough excuse. Only bad leaders. And what that also tells me is that, you know, if you have a dickhead superstar on your team, it's better to fire him and take, take that person with the good attitude, who's hungry, who maybe doesn't have all the skills yet and train them all day, every day. When leaders who epitomize extreme ownership drive their teams to achieve a higher standard of performance, they must recognize that when it comes to standards, as a leader, it's not what you preach, it's what you tolerate. Now, this is such a good quote that has like imbued itself into my soul too. You know, I worked at a, that same company where you know, everybody was saying like, we need to have a culture of discipline, but then no one would fucking do deadlines like you know it's like oh hey sorry i got real busy and i couldn't make the deadline but i'll get to you like by end of day tomorrow like what what are you fucking talking about like oh did you have a death in the family no 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 oh so did you stop working at like 9 or 10 p.m last night oh no no so what do you mean you just couldn't get it done so that um you know like we would we would preach discipline but then the but what we tolerated was people just not having discipline. Leaders should never be satisfied. They must always strive to improve, and they must build that mindset into the team. They must face the facts through a realistic, brutally honest assessment of themselves and their team's performance. Identifying weaknesses, good leaders seek to strengthen them and come up with a plan to overcome challenges. The best teams anywhere, like the SEAL teams, are constantly looking to improve, adding capability, and push the standards higher. The new leader of Boat Crew 6 focused his team on the mission. Rather than tolerate their bickering and infighting, he pulled the team together and focused their collective efforts on the single specific goal of winning the race. 
He established a new and higher standard of performance and accepted nothing less from the men in his boat crew. No bad teams, only bad leaders. Got it. Now we're we're still entering into the laws of combat, so you know, there's a couple couple foundational thought processes that Jocko and Leif are throwing out for us, and then we're gonna run ourselves deep into the principles. Chapter three, believe by Lord Jocko. This makes no sense. No sense at all, I thought, as I read through the mission statement from Higher Command. We were to execute missions by, with, and through Iraqi security forces. Unlike my first deployment to Iraq, where SEALs worked almost exclusively with our own SEAL team and other US or NATO operations forces, my SEAL task unit now had been directed to work with conventional forces. But not just any conventional forces, Iraqi conventional forces. We had fired thousands of rounds through our vast arsenal of weapons until we could do so with the highest degree of accuracy while under substantial pressure. We had trained for hundreds of hours, iteration after iteration, drill after drill, until we could operate not just as a group of individuals, but as a team, a synchronized machine, maneuvering with precision and efficiency through the challenges of chaotic battlefields. Now. I was being told that task unit bruiser, my friends, my brothers, these highly trained and motivated men, would have to fight alongside conventional Iraqi soldiers, arguably some of the worst combat troops in the world. I would put forth, and I know nothing, but I would put forth that uh, you take a like a an, a bunch of fucking high school Eagle Scouts, you could train like Jocka would take a Jocka would take two hundred Eagle Scouts over two hundred of the. Con, like 16 year old Eagle Scouts I'll put forth uh, than, uh, than 200 conventional Iraqi soldiers. In less hostile areas of Iraq, this mandate, so you know, go by with and through them, meant building training programs on secure bases and running Iraqi soldiers through basic soldiering skills and finally some advanced infantry tactic, tactics before taking them out on patrol in enemy territory. So he's saying, you know, that's like a, a, a Navy wide directive and for most of the people, you know, because they weren't in actual hell, it meant like, oh, let's we're gonna build a little basic training for them. But Ramadi, uh, it was hell. It was uh, it was like trying to teach salsa dancing in the middle of D-Day. Ain't no chance. When our SEALs in Task Unit Bruiser learned that they would be allowed to conduct, that they wouldn't be allowed to conduct operations unless they were alongside Iraqi soldiers, they were livid and completely against the idea. These were Jocko's orders, and for him to lead, he had to believe in them. So he kept his doubts to himself, and he asked a simple question: Why? <laughs> you know, because like, and and then and you know, Jocko's putting this like in print that that the president of the United States could see, and he's saying this is how how uh, sanitized his description is. But he says they were simply terrible, and no amount of training would make them excellent soldiers. But perhaps we could make them good enough. I understand the battlefield in Ramadi is dangerous, Jackal told his troops. It's difficult. Why make it even harder by forcing us to fight alongside Iraqi soldiers? Damn right, nodded much of the men in the room. Let me ask you something, Jacko said. If the Iraqi military can't get to a point where they can handle security in their own country, who's going to do it? Well, it's obvious. It'd be those guys in the room, a never-ending deployment. But to do that, we have to get each mission approved. 
And if we want our missions approved, we have to have Iraqi soldiers with us on every operation. So we can train them, but we can also continue our path of killing and destruction. Does anybody not understand this? There were no more questions. The most important question had been answered. Why? Once I analyzed the mission and understood for myself that critical piece of information, which was, you know, if you don't if you don't start having these people doing these missions, then you know, it's like, you know, if you if you are an identical twin and you you masquerade as a UFC fighter, but your identical twin's actually the one doing it, and then all of a sudden like they get covid and die, now uh dude you're going to get murked. So what the the why is that you know if not them who well it's going to be the u.s forever and so but jocko had to figure it out he had to say you know when when he didn't believe in the mission he couldn't honestly tell his team hey go do this so a, a big principle of of extreme ownership and, and the philosophy is, is you gotta just you gotta tell your people why and this is this is not this is less life or death but equally traumatic for me uh, my wife and i bought a fixer upper house and um, it was really shitty. It, the whole process, the whole everything. We started fostering the kids at the same time we bought the house. It was crazy. But what I didn't realize is that the wife turned into a Nazi drill sergeant. And uh, so I remember we were moving a piece of furniture. And it, like maybe it was from the garage inside. And I didn't even know what room we were moving it in. I had no clue which door she wanted to go through. You know, we got it through the door and set it down and she's just like, stay right here. And so like a good grunt in boot camp, I stayed right there. One minute, two minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes. Finally, I like walked out and I was like, hey, do you want me to do anything? She's like, do you even use any common sense? I, I assumed you weren't helping anymore. And she just left me to die. And, uh, you know, I explained to her that, hey, if I don't know like if i don't know why like i don't even know what we're doing or like what in the scheme of fixing up the house what is this piece of furniture where does it go it, like i don't even know the plan so don't be don't be mad if i'm just legit and unthinking automaton only caring about not having you make get mad uh you know when you micromanage the fuck out of people you get incompetent robots but then you know, we, we've worked together a bunch more and it's like we built this patio and actually like worked amazing together because we knew all the steps and, you know, we just used decentralized command. But, um, you know, the why is super important. And if the, you know, if the subordinates can't answer that question, they must ask. And so like, yeah, you're the leader, like obviously it's your responsibility. But if, if you, Mr. or Mrs. Subordinate Leader, are, you know, get a stupid ass directive, like and, you, and it doesn't make sense you, it's your job to ask questions until you either escalate it all the way up and figure out that you're wrong or like shine the light on the cockroach and everybody realizes the plan's stupid so all plans everything you know every thing that we are engaged in we gotta know why okay so we're still in the we're still in the philosophy preamble but we've learned about what extreme ownership is we've learned that it's, it's important to talk about why and we've learned that there's no bad teams, only bad leaders. The next thing, and I'll say this is so freaking important, is check the ego. And so Jocko's going to like illustrate this concept with a story. But basically, uh, you know, Ramadi, like historically, the, the 
special operations would just like go do their own shit and just go like go cause a lot of trouble and rescue people and then like leave in the night but in ramadi like they were having to work with conventional forces and you know it was a savage war zone basically um you know the level of determination and sophistication from insurgent fighters in ramadi was alarming far beyond what any of us in task unit Bru bruiser had seen on previous deployments Several times a week, groups of 20 or 30 well-armed enemy fighters launched hellacious attacks on U.S. forces. These were well-coordinated, complex attacks executed simultaneously on multiple U.S. outposts separated by several kilometers. They were hardcore moves. Machine gun fire, then rockets and small arms, and then they just drive a cement truck filled with just a, 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 like a warhead and then blow themselves up. And if the truck made it past the concrete barriers, past the Marine or Army sentries, you know, it, the results could be as, as catastrophic as like a U.S. Tomahawk missile because of the, the vehicle-borne vehicle IEDs. And in Task Unit Bruiser, we were confident and perhaps even a little cocky. But I tried to temper that confidence by instilling a culture within our task unit to never be satisfied. We pushed ourselves harder to continuously improve our performance. If we were going to win. And so basically, like he's laying this out to say shit was real fucking crazy and they were super good, but it was actually so crazy that they just couldn't do it alone. So they had to work with army units, with marines. And so from the earliest arrival, Task Unit Bruiser, they shaved their heads. They did, they, you know, they wore their uniforms to army regulations, which is sacrilegious i believe in the special operations you know they're famous for like long hair and tattoos and you know like everybody's wearing baseball caps but jocko knows that hey we're gonna have to work with these conventional units so we're gonna we're gonna have our appearance is gonna be at the exact same standard as them in task unit bruiser I insisted that our uniforms be squared away and our haircuts military regulation. Working together, humbly learning, SEALs moved quickly and rained hell. And then the army did large conventional operations. It was a dream partnership. So basically saying all that to just say like, hey, it was a, it was actually like a, a cultural uh, challenge where special operations is like Wild West and conventional army is like conventional army. And so he made them wear the regulations and, and just fit in just to show professionalism, to show respect. And it was a dream. They, they just did kill them like ain't never been seen in thousands of years. But then Jocko tells another story of like a badass unit. Like it was, I think, special operations. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I'm retarded. But, um, you know, it was just a bunch of badasses, but they didn't do what Jocko was doing. They had mismatched uniforms. They were rude. They talked down even to the highest levels of the army forces and so and after two weeks even though they could have made such an impact they got asked to leave because everybody fucking hated them so compare that to you know like one unit was loved and treasured jacko's unit the other maybe even just as good maybe even better than jacko's unit didn't play nice and got asked to fucking leave and the point is that Jocko's team kept their ego in check and harvested so much enemy meat and these people who were maybe even better or at least as good got fired because they simply wouldn't work together. Principle, 
ego clouds and and disrupts everything the planning process the ability to take good advice and the ability to accept criticism even it can even stifle someone's own sense of self-preservation you know imagine you got a like huge ego and you did a dumbass plan and you're actually like don't want to admit it but your plan's going to get everybody killed your your ego can actually stifle your own sense of self-preservation often the most difficult ego to deal with is your own everyone has an ego ego drives the most successful people in life in the seal teams in the military in the business world they want to win to be the best that's good but when ego clouds our judgment and prevents us from seeing the world as it is then ego becomes destructive implementing extreme ownership requires checking your ego and operating with a high degree of humility admitting mistakes taking ownership developing a plan to overcome challenges is integral to success and so like an example from my past life is i sold ads at angie's list crazy boiler room sales super ridiculous like phone sales back before robo callers kind of ruined cold calling and you know we'd have all these these high stakes fast negotiations where like you could hit your goal in one phone call on the first day of the month and so you know you but you dealt with all different types of service providers because you know angie's list is like contractors and so there were some sales reps who like always wanted to be right and so like they would you know like let's say a service provider was like you know i just don't think those angie's list ads are working too well you know they would like this other account manager would basically say like no actually it is i looked on your profile and you have 27 hits a month that's really really good so you know imagine if you're that service provider you're like who's this fucking kid i like no i know that it wasn't good and so there were there were this group that just really wanted to be right and then there's the other group that just actually just wanted to win and and the way we won that was you'd get them to sign the next year's agreement and so you know i would i always would fall like there was a phrase do you want to be right or do you want to be rich meaning i'll let them say whatever they want like man this damn angie's list ads they, they hardly didn't work and let's say this person's paying twenty thousand dollars like you know what I, I i think you tried really hard i saw you got a lot of reviews you were really invested um you know if, if we took if we took like a couple couple thousand bucks off you think that would help and they're like yeah and then you're like well you know your price did go up so it looks like it's only one thousand dollars more than last year and then you get them to sign on the phone when the other guy is still over there like freaking telling them oh you know no you're wrong the ads did work so you know it's if you can have like if you can check your ego and realize like i don't need to be right here okay i just need to get them to sign that's what he's saying and that principle applies to everything so that was the philosophy holy shit and now without further ado what you guys have all been waiting for moving into the actual four laws of combat first law of combat cover and move so there's a story that he, he illustrates this with um there's an operation two seal units going out and uh, providing sniper overwatch for a big army operation of like going out and clearing a bunch of buildings so you got a couple navy seal units just like popping out and just shooting bitches but then you got a bunch of army people you know kind of doing more of conventional you know let's say 700 army units going and clearing these 50 buildings after a whole day 
Um, the mission had been been accomplished, but the Overwatch teams kind of had to get back. You know, like they can't just can't just live there forever. They had to they had to come back. Um, but the thing was, both of those positions were actually well, uh, like one position in particular, but both of them were bad enough that just both needed to come back. Um, and so their standard operating procedure, which is what they would theoretically do every time. Um, dictated that they remain in position until nightfall and then put patrol back under cover of darkness uh, because you know a small element patrolling in broad daylight through enemy territory um, yeah, there was quite a risk of getting shot uh, but especially for that one specific unit overwatch 2 it's called um, they couldn't remain in their current position because it, it had huge risks uh, you know, the building had substantial tactical vulner tactical vulnerabilities, and the enemy knew where they were. Uh, Leif says, this presented quite a leadership dilemma. Stay until nightfall and let the bitches rally up. Call in Bradley fighting vehicles, but, you know, maybe they'll drive in and they'll blow up on IEDs. Um, or do they break procedure, but utilize speed and misdirection and just, like, sprint back? No good option, but Leif made the call, hey... We're pulling out. It's the least bad option. Let's get packed, get out as soon as we can. So for one of the Overwatch positions, so Overwatch 1, it was just like 300 meter patrol back. And they were, they were covered. It was, you know, they probably could have stayed there overnight, but just decided, hey, we're going back. So um, Overwatch 1 radioed us, telling us that they too were pulling out. But Overwatch 1 made the mistake of not telling Jocko, which meant he couldn't coordinate the movements. Roger that, Overwatch 2 radio men said. He relayed this info to, to Leif. And so, um, you know, Leif is now focusing entirely on getting his team, Overwatch 2, moving out in a hurry. Hey, uh, we didn't, they didn't really think any of it. They're like, okay, cool. Overwatch 1's going back to, we're going to run back. Great. Let's do it. And so they basically played like the world's highest stakes game of hide and seek and ran back to the fucking compound. They used cover and move as they were, as they were going back to the compound. So like one squad would shoot or at least cover the other squad would run. They, they did that all the way back. So they leapfrogged all the way back uh, until hell broke loose. But they engaged the enemy. Uh, they, they killed him. Everybody was happy. High-fiving. Our SEAL machine gunners were an awesome sight to behold. Fearlessly laying down fire with deadly accuracy, even as rounds impacted around them. Our overwhelming fire quickly repulsed the enemy attack, and we ran back to safety. But already at Cop Falcon, so like their base where everybody's running back to, was our platoon chief. He had been with the conventional force and had returned earlier with Jocko and the rest of the small team. But chief wasn't happy. He pulled me aside. What the hell are you guys doing out there? What do you mean? I replied, immediately getting defensive. The chief, a hell of a battlefield leader, zero blood in his body, only this viscous black liquid that strangely resembled a bottle of chewing tobacco spit. He was the most experienced SEAL in the task unit. Why didn't you leave the other Overwatch position in place to cover your movement back to Cop Falcon? Leif thought for a moment, his initial defensiveness wearing off. Damn, he was right. No reason, I replied. Understanding his logic was absolutely correct. I was so focused on my own squad dilemma, I didn't, I didn't think to coordinate with the other team, Overwatch 1. So when Overwatch 1 moved out, Leif should have been like, hey guys, actually, like, let us, let us move out first so you can cover us. Because they could have covered him. 
But instead, they just had to like get in an actual fucking crazy gun battle and get back using using big nut. This was the first rule in Jocko's laws of combat: cover and move. I had broken it. We had used it in my small team, so like they did use it. You know, they didn't just like do a mad dash back. But I had forgotten about the greater team and the support available. Had we left Overwatch One in place, they they would have had an excellent vantage from the high ground and could have covered our movement back. It was a rude awakening for me. I had become so immersed in the details, decision points, and immediate challenges of my own team that I had forgotten about the other teams, what they could do, and how they could help us. Going forward, I never forgot my chief's guidance. We utilized the principle of cover and move on every operation, all teams working together to support one another. Principle: cover and move is the most fundamental tactic, perhaps the only tactic. Put simply, cover and move means teamwork. All elements within the greater team are crucial and must work together to accomplish the mission, mutually supporting one another for that singular purpose. So, in that previous example of you know, if the commander takes extreme ownership and it goes down to the next person, the next person, the next person, each level takes extreme ownership all the way down to the individual com contributing members. That's great. But wrapped in that is they, there needs to be a culture of covering, cover and move of, hey, you know, oh, this person feels a little sick. But like, like, let's say I'm a, let's say I'm a pilot. Okay. As I was preparing for this shit on the plane, let's say I'm a pilot and, um, you know, it's a, it's a flight across the United States and it's a seven hour flight. Okay. We serve drinks three times throughout the flight, hypothetically. But I see that one of my flight attendants is like checking her phone and kind of crying and like looks really fucking sad, but she's like trying to do it and, you know, like walk around and do the drinks. Well, if I am really doing cover and move correctly and I'm the pilot, even though it's beneath my station, I go to her and I'm like, Hey, you good? Like, yeah, you know, my son, he's, he's got in a car accident and like, he's texting me from the hospital. Like, I think everything's going to be okay. Uh, you know, what Jock was saying is you should, you should, and everybody throughout the whole organization should say, Hey, no factor. Don't worry about it. Hey, Hey, sit over there. You get this figured out. I need to get my steps in anyways. You know, let me serve the drinks these next two times. And then, you know, you'll owe me next time we fly together. I'll have you fly the plane. I'll wear a cute little outfit like that. But, um, I'll serve the drinks. No problem. That's cover and move. The focus must always be on how to best accomplish the mission. Alternatively, when the, when the team succeeds, everyone within and supporting that team succeeds. So, so what that's saying is like, don't fucking worry about, are you getting the credit? Is someone else getting the credit? Like if the team wins, bitch, you're going to be good. Okay. So just fucking help each other as much as you possibly can. Because in the long run, like that one individual credit, like even if you're the top performer on a losing team, <laughs> who fucking cares? And uh, there's a there was a time when my old boss, you know the the guy who's uh, you know a team or you're fucking dead to him. Uh, we were in charge of building the entire sales department for like an eighty million dollar company, and there were only like two of us and 150 people, <laughs> like who you know who who basically had no idea about sales, uh, and so you know, we were trying to cover and move. And so like I was coming for him, he's coming for me. And so there's a specific example where it was like, he had a, a meeting, like a presentation of 50 CFOs. And, um, I knew from the room that he was doing it in and he was calling someone in from New York city too. like, there was a 0% chance 
that if I didn't help him, that that the fucking technology would have like worked. And so it was at 8 a.m. It was a breakfast, and everybody was gonna get there at 7:45. But I got there at 7:15, which I worked out before that, and it was like an hour commute. So I got there f- so fucking early, and I just learned how to do this whole, how to like do the whole audio visual system. And I got it set up with like seven minutes to spare. No one even knew it was a was like a fucking crisis. But um, afterwards, I was like, "Hey, man, good thing I uh, I'm on the A team, and uh, I got I was your technology guy today." And he was just like, "Thanks." And uh, but a few months later, there was I was um, our executive leadership team was contemplating volunteering me to cold call two thousand random ass names with no possibility for commission. And uh, this old guy, this this my my old boss, he covered for me, and it was like Troy is not doing that. And so once you know, like yes, in isolation, all of these are really cool. But I think what Jocko would say is that as the organization, as it gets imbued in their culture, cover and move. You know, hey, no, no problem. I'll help you out, and then they help me out, and then everybody's fucking helping each other. Everybody's mutually supporting, and just mass industrialization of murder happens or if you're on a sales team you make a lot of sales so that is the first principle cover and move principle two simple jocko cop falcon so combat outpost i think so it's home base it's their office cop falcon into the fray a massive explosion shook the walls of the building i was sitting in right in the middle of cop falcon adrenaline shot from my core down my arms into my hands soon the word spread mortars insurgents had lobbed 120 millimeter mortar rounds smack dab into the center of cop falcon with deadly accuracy so jock was like trying to do some damn emails and people are dropping fucking mortars at his office you know the biggest i think the biggest work issue that i ever had like that was i briefly i my seating assignment i i had to sit 20 feet from the bathroom and so I'd make eye contact with everyone from our company when they went to shit. And then like guiltily, they'd try to avoid my eyes if it took longer than five minutes because I know what you did. You know, I never had to make sales with the possibility that my building might implode and my limbs get blown off. Fuck. And that was just the beginning. The overall mission was to go out, seize, clear, hold, and build slowly building the safe zone out like an amoeba but this could not be accomplished by sitting and hiding inside heavily reinforced bases the troops had to go out and into the neighborhoods surrounding the combat outpost so you know you got to go out and seize and build and then build this safe zone until ultimately like the whole city is safe Uh, but you can't do that by like hiding in a castle so the troops had to conduct a type of operation so straightforward that its name required almost no explanation a presence patrol. It required a group of soldiers to push into enemy ter- territory to establish a presence among the populace. And so Jocko's been doing this for like three, four, five months, just getting after it so fucking hard. And um, there was a uh, a MIT team. So I, I don't basically know nothing, but like some army unit, something like that, who's embedded with indigenous soldiers. So like it's this dude and then 20 Iraqis, something like that. That's like directionally right. And so this dude comes and he's super excited to get out on patrol and and with his Iraqis and and test their metal. 
because he's been training them up for three, four, five, six months, living with them, eating bugs in the fucking dirt. And he's like, I'm ready, man. And uh, so Jock's like, cool, man. Welcome to Ramadi. Get ready to maybe die. Um, what's your plan? And so this uh, this guy starts going through his fucking giant plan where he's going to, you know, he's basically, he's planning like the Ocean's Eleven bank heist. My immediate discussions with the MIT leader revealed he did not fully appreciate the dangers that lay in store. I was also concerned that his Iraqi soldiers might not be ready for the savage street fighting. The MIT leader outlined his plan. So uh, a path that snaked through the treacherous city streets, clear across south central Ramadi, over to the next US combat outpost to the east. This was nearly two kilometers through some of the most hostile territory in Iraq. None of the roads had been cleared from IEDs, and he uh, was going through like two or three different army radio nets. So, like you know, to make sure you don't get fucking blue on blued, you gotta like deconflict and be like, "Hey, at this time, I'm gonna be here, okay?" And all the army radios are different, so like you gotta build relationships. You gotta like know these other units so that you can be like, "Hey, I'm gonna go into your territory. Don't fucking shoot me, okay?" And uh, because the IEDs hadn't been removed, you know, if shit went crazy, U.S. armored vehicles couldn't really come help him. So, like, his plan—we're gonna, you know, we're gonna walk in two kilometers. Well, those are two kilometers that if sh- if anything goes bad, that bitch is dead. But it's not just that bitch. No offense. It's that guy and his whole unit. And then all of a sudden, you've got a you got a you got a done big ass problem. Beyond that, I listened to the plan. When I understood the overall idea and the complexity involved, I finally commented, Lieutenant, I appreciate your motivation to get out and get after it. But perhaps at least on these first few patrols, we need to simplify a bit. Simplify, the MIT leader incredulously said. It's just a patrol. How complex can it get? Jocko nods his head respectfully. I know it's just a patrol, but there are some risks that can compound when working in an environment like this. Then Jocko walked this dude through the fact that his plan was actually fragile in a Nassim Taleb sense. There's so many different variables. You know, anyone could go wrong. You know, you could have a twisted ankle that turns into a fucking horrible problem because you can't get support and help. Then Jocko just says, hey, for this first patrol, just because my seals haven't worked with you before, can we keep the battle space just just to the battle space owned by this company? So basically just saying like, hey, can we just keep it so you don't have to like, you know, potentially risk going into these other units places and get shot and like have to coordinate and deconflict. Let's just, how about we just do it in this like, do a presence patrol. So we're going to walk around and walk back in this 600 yards. Okay, deal? I know it seems short. But let's just keep it simple to start. We can expand as we get more experience. And Jocko says, I knew that one real operation in this environment for the MIT leader would convince him that simplicity was key. And so even as, you know, all these people are getting ready, no one seems really too concerned. You know, it's like, oh, we're just going to go walk a quarter mile this way and then we're going to walk back. But Jocko knows differently. He walks up to the young SEAL leader assigned to the MIT team. He looks him in the eyes and says, you're going to get contacted out there. It will happen quick. Stay sharp, understand? My serious tone impacted the young lieutenant who nodded slowly to confirm. 
Got it, sir. Will do. Then, Jocko does the most savage but professional way of proving he's right without being a dick. He presses start on his stopwatch to see how long until that guy gets contacted. So, Jocko's like, bitch, he's going to get into a gunfight very quickly. Presses his watch. And Jocko knows this because he's been there for months. And his bros have been contacted by enemy fighters almost every patrol. So presses his watch. Daka, 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 pop, 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 die, motherfucker, die. I looked at my watch. It had been 12 minutes since the patrol stepped off Cop Falcon. The, the shooting continued. It was a substantial firefight. Volleys of gunfire rattled back and forth between the patrol and enemy fighters. Two friendlies wounded need Kazavak and fire support. And, uh, you know, Jocko ended up having to send tanks in after this dude. The two casualties were Iraqi soldiers. Both had been shot. One while crossing the street had been abandoned by his fellow Iraqi soldiers and two SEALs had risked their lives and dragged him to safety. When the patrol made it back to Cop Falcon, I met them as they entered the compound. Making eye contact with the young SEAL leader, I gave him an approving nod. Without saying it, I said, well done. You kept your composure and made clear calls. You got the help you needed and kept the rest of your team alive. Nice. The MIT leader was clearly shaken up. It had been his first serious firefight, his first real test as a leader. Fortunately, he had agreed to keep it simple to minimize the complexity for the inevitable contingencies that could arise. It was a worst case scenario. Had this gunfight happened where they had originally planned to go much deeper in enemy territory, it would have likely been catastrophic. I gave the mitt leader a different nod. One that said, hey, fucker, this is why we keep it simple. The mitt leader looked back at me. He didn't nod back, but his eyes communicated to me clearly. I know that now. I understand. I'm sorry, Lord Jocko. Would you like me to kill myself for my dishonor? Jocko quickly shakes his head no. Don't want to burden the military by having to find another mitt leader. Keep your stomach in today. Now, compounding risks is such a good way of describing the above. And you know, it's like, let's, let's just think about, so you're, you're two kilometers away. You're through two different radio nets, which like, maybe it's really easy. Maybe you clear it. Maybe you're like, hey guys, I'm gonna be here. And they're like, no, no, it's all good. We're, we're going to see the Garth Brooks concert. And then it's fine, but maybe it's not. And, but imagine you're like, you're two kilometers in. You've, you successfully went through the first other team you know other military units radio net they know you're there all good you think you went through the second but you actually like miscalculate on the map you're now on the third and they think that you're an enemy soldier now you twist your ankle okay <laughs> you're f and no one can come save you because of ieds that those compounding risks like one mistake like one tiny oops i fucked up my bad i i, I read them like i read the map wrong and I twisted my ankle, those two insignificant things have now turned into, you're getting machine gunned to death. Combat, like anything in life, has inherent complexities. Simplifying as much as possible is crucial to success. When plans and orders are too complicated, people may not understand them. And when things go wrong, and they inevitably do go wrong, complexity compounds issues that can spiral out of control into total disaster. Plans and orders must be communicated in a matter that is simple, clear, and concise. 
everyone that is part of the mission must know and understand his or her role in the mission and what to do in the event of contingencies. Simple. This principle isn't limited to the battlefield. In the business world and in life, there are inherent complexities. It is critical to keep plans and communication simple. Following this rule is crucial to the success of any team in any combat, business, or life. And the crazy thing here is like, this isn't simple because everybody's an idiot. Like that's that's like maybe a little bit of a part of it, but it's simple's important because we can't predict what's gonna happen. So your plan needs to handle the thousand parallel universes that might happen. You know, the twisting the ankle, the not twisting the ankle, the twisting the ankle, falling, knocking your teeth out on a rusty, you know, like a rusty metal fence and then having to spend five days in this place. But now you're starting to get like rust poisoning or fucking whatever. Um, it's, it's setting up the system that over those thousands of parallel universes results in the highest likelihood of success, even when shit goes bad. And, you know, if we think about the 80-20 principle, there's actually like just a few core things that really matter and a bunch that don't. So let's just hypothetically pick like a totally normal example. Let's say we're robbing a house. Let's uh, think about a simple plan. Okay, you case the place for three weeks by parking at a public park and bird watching. You've got your binoculars. You've got bird watching. you got a little little clipboard. You're doing a drawing, but like, you know, the world's shittiest artist. So if someone would actually look at it, they, they'd know, wow, this guy's, this guy's either like extremely enthusiastic about bird watching, but fucking horrible or something's up. But you pulled off. Uh, you know, you pick a place with no dog and no neighbors, and you figure out just by your little bird watching thing that they go to church every Sunday from 9 to 12. So, you wait until the, the next Sunday, you walk up to their house, you knock on the door. If they answer, well, shit, okay, I guess someone got food poisoning and we didn't go to church. You be totally normal and you say, hey, excuse me, sorry to bother you guys. And if this isn't a good time, no problem. But I'm with the, I'm with the National Vegetarian Society and I just want to do a survey about your weekly meat consumption. Would you mind if I come in? And then they probably are like, get the fuck away from me, but they'd maybe let you in. And then you just interview them about their meat consumption. And then you don't rob them. You find another house and you repeat bird watching. There we go. If they aren't there, you kick the door in, you set your watch for three minutes. You take all the jewelry and cash you find and you leave out back. If you do happen to be caught when you're, when you're kicking the door in, you just say, no, sir, I wasn't, I wasn't kicking the door. I was punishing the house. Did you know that they are a house of meat eaters? Can I ask you, sir, how many times per week do you eat meat? Are you aware that eating meat is one of the most highest polluting things that a human being could do? Sir, have you ever considered vegetarianism? And then, then the cop just fucking lets you go like, well, okay, I guess I, I, I thought that guy was trying to break in that house, but like clearly he's just vegetarian. Now compare that to, let's say that you got the same plan, you're going to rob this house but you're gonna sneak into their property. And instead of casing the place by bird watching, you sneak onto their property every day for three weeks in a ghillie suit. Think of all the risks that could happen there. Maybe they do have a dog you didn't know about. Maybe they get a dog. Maybe they're, they're deer hunting and they see you. And let's say you also, you, know, you don't keep it simple, you pick a house 
with neighbors because you're like i'm a professional doesn't matter neighbors don't matter and you pick pick a house that has a dog because you know what whatever dude you're gonna ghillie suit into their place at midnight you're gonna pick their lock and you're gonna you're gonna change out of your ghillie suit and you're gonna tranquilize the dog with with the tranquilizer that you're gonna steal from a vet clinic you're gonna sneak 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 through their house not waking them you're gonna steal their steal their jewelry and then sneak 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 back out the window you came in think of all the fucking ways that can go wrong you know you get stuck in the window you, you know your ghillie suit comes halfway off you trip and fall and you choke yourself out and you wake up and the dog is using you as a toilet simple pick the plan with the least moving parts because life has a way of picking random crap to happen when it's like really important for stuff to go right simple when young seal leaders in training look at targets for training missions they often try to develop a course of action that accounts for every single possibility they can think of that results in a plan that is extraordinarily complex and very difficult to follow. While the troops might understand their individual pieces of the plan, they have a hard time following all the intricacies of the grand scheme. Maybe they can even get away with it a few times, but if everything doesn't go smoothly, the enemy gets a vote. And basically all that's just saying is like, you know, you have this great plan in your head, but as soon as you try like the the sneaking in with the ghillie suit and you get caught on the window and you trip and fall and you're like barely holding on to consciousness and then you see the lights turn on and the homeowner comes out with a shotgun the enemy and life gets a vote holy shit two of four down we got two more and then we got a bit of a section of jocko just handing us all gold that we get the bite but we realize holy fuck it's real gold we're rich bitch but if you want to learn about that the next two laws of combat close this whore out you're gonna have to tune in next time on the next episode of the curiously disagreeable podcast thank you thank you very much and that's my pretties is another episode down of the curiously disagreeable podcast check us out at curiously disagreeable.com the troy hollings on instagram or wherever the fuck you get your podcast the end